we started with about uh, you know fifteen thousand euro uh, budget, which is let's say fifteen thousand dollars today, and we spent maybe seventy percent of that on Amazon gift cards. Uh, so that we can incentivize financial people to speak to us for 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, otherwise, uh, that was really hard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Christo Borisov, CEO and co-founder of Payhawk, the first ever Bulgarian unicorn where they've built an all-in-one finance platform serving businesses across 32 countries in Europe and the US. Founded just four years ago, Payhawk now enjoys unicorn status and has raised equity from Green Oaks, QED, Lightspeed, Endeavor, HubSpot, and many more. In this episode, we discuss the growing Bulgarian startup ecosystem and why it pushed them to build a global company from day one, scaling to unicorn status. Christo shares hacks and techniques that help them scale from zero to one. Payhawk's unique model for building and shipping products extremely fast while keeping everyone at the company laser-focused on the mission, early mistakes and challenges as a fintech founder, and why you should always over-invest in talent, and just a lot more. Hope you enjoy this great conversation with Christo from Payhawk. Christo, welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast. Very, very excited to have you all the way from um, Sofia, Bulgaria. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, thank you for having me, Miguel. No, I'm, I'm excited because uh, you are probably the first Bulgarian that we're interviewing and also the first company coming out of Bulgaria. So we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, but before we get there... I really there, hope that's not going to be the last one. <laughs> <laughs> we're working a lot in the ecosystem to make sure we have more companies uh, following our path. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Like, yeah, tell us, tell us a bit about about your path. Um, you 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 spent some time at a at a big tech company called Progress, um, and then you went on to launch Payhawk. Maybe tell us a bit about your background, and, and specifically, I'm curious to know about how you made that switch from being a b- big corporate employee to launching a startup with just a couple of people. Yeah. Um, so I think the backstory is that, um, you know, I started my career as an engineer in 2007. Uh, I spent the first four years as, a, as an engineer in a company called Teleric. And back then it was not that big. It was about 70 employees when I joined in 2007 and grew to 850 people by 2014. So we were kind of a fast scaling, you know, startup and be, that became a scale up. And that was kind of the biggest exit of the Bulgarian tech scene at the time. So we got acquired by this public company called Progress Software for $263 million in 2014. And I ended up in that public company for four years um, where I was director of product, leading a team of uh, 12 product managers and having 180 engineers helping us shape up a pretty large roadmap. 
So the transition to me into coming back to the trenches uh, and starting something uh, from the scratch was, I think, a transition of, of, you know, having had the experience to build and compete with a lot of, uh, you know, companies on the market that were kind of leaders. Uh, with Teleric, we managed to create a market-leading product. We had more than 300,000 customers, B2B customers across the world. Uh, you know, we had 250 people, sales team in Boston. Uh, you know, we made a lot of acquisitions. We were competing uh, a lot with uh, kind of, I would say, wor- uh, you know, uh, worldwide audience uh, of companies that were in that space. And that gave us the, you know, the motivation and, uh, and um, you know, confidence that we can go and compete on a global scale. And when we started Payhawk in 2018, the, the task was very clear. We wanted to bring our, you know, background of building, you know, enterprise tools and software within a new industry that we didn't know much about, like financial services. And we quickly decided that our strategy is to really, you know, to match what uh, what the market has in terms of, you know, financial services. And if we can get that to be about financial services, then we can really bring the, the, the battlefield to be in our, so to say, uh, backyard where we are going to be very strong with delivering, uh, you know, world-class software. And that has been the DNA of the company, really building world-class software from day one. So I'm curious, how did you ensure at the very beginning of Payhawk that you truly understood the client problem and that you were building something that the client absolutely needed and not just a a nice to have? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, one of the, First things we did uh, was on day one, we actually did a so-called Google Sprint, uh, um, you know, a, a process incubated in, in Google um, so that, you know, you can go and validate an idea for five days. And within these five days, the goal is to really put together a hypothesis uh, and figure out a solution to this pr- hypothesis, build a prototype, and on the fifth day, try to sell it to actual customers. And during that process, we met with, 10 or 11 uh, financial people uh, with which, you know, the first three, four on Monday, we use them to validate the idea and to validate the problem, to define the problem, so to say, uh, before we come up with the solution. And then on the on the fifth day, we had uh, six of them uh, where we were actually selling them a prototype and a vision and a value proposition. And over the course of the, you know, we started with a very tiny budget. Uh, myself and my co-founder, Boyko Karajov, we started with about, uh, you know, 15,000 euro budget, which is, let's say, $15,000 today. And we spent maybe 70% of that on Amazon gift cards uh, so that we can incentivize financial people to speak to us for 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, otherwise, uh, that was really hard. And we really wanted to speak to as many people as possible at the beginning. And this is where we stumbled on the problem. Our first idea was a little bit different, but then every time we were meeting, you know, financial people and telling them about our first idea of virtual cards protecting companies from overspending money on subscriptions. They were telling us about the challenge they have with managing physical cards and managing, you know, excluding expenses and reports, expense reports. And this is where we, we, we saw that there are some early companies in the space attracting VC money. And what we did is actually a very, 
so let's say controversial, I would say, but we use their websites for, uh, you know, for some of those competitors' websites to show them to prospects and ask them, would they buy this product? Why? Why wouldn't they buy them? Just to understand where the value prop of the competitors would break, right? Um, and that gave us the insight as, you know, being product people and engineers, you know, we were wondering what if we built what they have and instead of waiting for two years, to understand what their customers are asking them today, let's go and try to sell their product and see what is the feedback that they're getting today so that we can actually put together a compelling enough vision and strategy to just execute from day one where we we know that they're going to end up in a year or two, right? So we did this kind of a mentor shortcut and we managed to leapfrog, uh, you know, a lot of the companies in the space in a quite short time. And, Obviously, to be able to do that from one side and then to be able to execute it are two different things. And we managed to really bring really strong engineers from day one. And when we closed our Series B, we had uh, a team of 11 engineers. While our competitors had at the time 130 to 150 people in their engineering team. And we had you know more competitive product than them uh, available in more markets uh, with better financial in- infrastructure. Uh, and that was the reason why we were managing to grow at that pace. And, um, you know, we it is very, you know, simple. You know, uh, we based it on betting on our DNA of building an amazing product and also, you know, starting from day one, asking the why, why we want to build this thing, uh, what we want to this thing to be. And the first thing we started when we started the company was, uh, we want to build a big company. And we had to identify a big problem uh, in a big market for this to become a big company. And that was kind of our driving force. And then, uh, you know, the rest is really execution and, and getting all the pieces along the way uh, in the right place. Help, help us understand. So the initial potential customers you were talking to, were they based in Bulgaria? No. So from day one... Uh, the first, you know, 10, 11 companies that we, uh, uh, customers that we spoke to on the first week of the company were um, one in Australia, three in the US, I think two in Canada, uh, and the rest spread across Europe. Uh, and at the end of the day, we were ignorant enough not to appreciate the complexity of going and building, uh, you know, truly global financial services product. And that actually helped us to really understand that this is a big enough problem across the board, right? If you ask somebody that had kind of the domain expertise and how to build those things today, he would never go and speak to somebody in Australia and somebody in Canada at the same time because it's just a different beast. Uh, But because we were ignorant enough not to understand the complexity, you know, we identify that that's actually a common problem and we understand where the commonality of this problem is. And that, is, that allowed us to put together a strategy of what we want to become and what we don't want to become down the road uh, because we had that insight from day one. That, that's fascinating. So you were thinking global from day one and, and that's become a reality today. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're serving businesses in over 30 countries uh, across exactly. Europe and the U.S., but um, your DNA and, and you're coming from Bulgaria, uh, maybe tell us a bit about uh, the ecosystem in Bulgaria. How has it helped you, right? And, and I'm guessing there are parallels with other ecosystems around the world, like Estonia, like 
Uruguay where you have to think global from day zero? Yeah, I think that that's exactly correct because right now we are serving businesses in 32 countries with payments, right? Not just with software. Software, you know, it's not that impressive that you can serve customers, but, you know, getting and integrating the payments, you know, company cards, debit cards, credit cards, bank payments, uh, reimbursements to employees and having all the software working with the local ERP systems is, is not a small feat. And you know, that again comes to, to how we started. And at the beginning, we did not have the luxury, like some competitors and some companies that were incubated that were in the US or Denmark or France or UK that had large enough domestic market on which they could focus from day one and really build the company to a stage before they go international. We had to be international from day one because Bulgaria is, is a market where we think of it as a as a market where, yes, we are present in it, but, uh, you know, we are here just so that we can actually serve local companies and we can bring that innovation that we're delivering uh, locally as well and people can associate with what we do. But we are doing mostly for employer branding rather than kind of a strong business case. And because we had to go and target these international companies from day one and, and to be overseas from day one, that allowed us to create a pretty international company. Uh, we currently have offices in seven countries um, across across the world. And we're able to really, uh, you know, from one side, we are a global brand targeting multinational fast scaling companies that, that want to be, you know, present and keep control of, of their spend. Um, but uh, on the other hand, we are also looking, building very local, um, you know, teams and departments because at the end of the day, every global company is local somewhere, right? And that's at the heart of our strategy. We want to be present in, in the key markets and to be able to really serve these kind of, uh, you know, companies that have aspiration to, to, to move fast, scale and, and keep and be efficient. So that is kind of the first answer to your question. The second one is about the ecosystem. So I think for the ecosystem uh, in Bulgaria, um, you know, Teleric, the company that I come from, was kind of the catalyst on the local market. Uh, this company uh, right now, after the acquisition by the public company and, uh, you know, after the last several years, there are more than 70 companies that span out of, you know, employees by the Teleric, right? This was, we joke to say that this is kind of called the Teleric Mafia, uh, right? Because... This is exactly what happens right now. And if you look at companies like GTM Hub or Office R&D and uh, other companies that are extremely successful now, SMS Boom that got acquired by Yopo and so on, um, you know, those companies were all, um, you know, all of them uh, had founders from, from Teleric. And that's not by coincidence, right? Uh, and that was kind of the catalyst. And... We have been really able to prove to ourselves that our heritage as, 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 uh, for the last 30, 40 years, uh, you know, having, you know, strong math schools, strong math, math background, having, you know, early talent in, in, uh, you know, computer science, uh, right now ma- managed to materialize in the last, I would say, 10, 15 years. Um, and we're moving in the local ecosystem a lot away from being an outsourcing destination where we just go and hire cheaper talent to actually moving to a lot more product focused, uh, um, you know, economy where we are delivering value uh, that is, uh, you know, much more efficient. And this is something that you mentioned Estonia. Yes, Estonia has done that on steroids. Uh, you know, if you look at, um, you know, 
you know, Tallinn and, and the size of the local ecosystem, it is just super impressive to see that, you know, there are, I think, not to make a mistake here, but less than half a million people live in that country and in that uh, capital. Um, and you have, I think, 15, 16 unicorns there, which is very, very impressive. Yeah, that's insane. So let me ask you something. Uh, every time you talk to a, a founder of a large company, they're always thinking about company culture because uh, it is important. And you've, you've mentioned a little bit of, of the culture that you're building. But when you're operating across many countries, across different cultures, how do you build a unified company culture? Well, I think that's a great question. And um, what we're trying to do is really stay true to our origins. So at the end of the day, there are, you know, culture for us is, you know, is a way of working together, um, you know, towards, uh, you know, a common goal. Um, that have been fought so frequently that it is just the way we we do things, right? Uh, this is very different from just saying, "Hey, culture is you know posters on the wall and so on." So it is the way we work as a team, and there are a lot of commonalities across uh, you know um, you know any country that you can you can get to that, right? So we have four aspects of our cu- uh, culture. The first one is you know nature leaders. Uh, we really, uh, you know, like to um, find people that are, uh, you know, people decide to follow because they're the one that, you know, even if they don't have the title, people are going to tag along with and they're going to be, uh, uh, you know, really inspired by those people. Uh, they're also very low on ego. Uh, you know, they are somebody that uh, uh, are okay to receive direct feedback uh, and not to take it personally. Uh, somebody that is really, um, you know, uh, a, a person that at the end of the day is able to really put together very clear, uh, uh, you know, uh, goals and objectives and be able to really put together the path for people to, to get to. Uh, the second thing that we are very uh, um, pushy on is really high talent density. Uh, we are usually very aggressive in terms of how we pay and incentivize our employees uh, because at the end of the day, for us, we are on a amazing opportunity to dominate a massive market uh, that is just the total addressable market for for what we are. We are just scratching the surface, pay hawking together with all the competitors that are in the space. Uh, so that's going to be a pretty exciting space for the next 10 years. And then the other thing that is very common is context over control, right? We, we love to, you know, focus on uh, making sure that people are aware that at the end of the day, we don't want to just tell them, hey, this is what you need to do. Uh, in terms of our leadership style, we, pr- we love to provide as much as context to people as much as possible to tell them what the objective is, to tell them what we're trying to do and let them go and execute that. And the last thing that has been very, very common and something that is part of our culture um, is that everybody is customer success. Uh, so everybody, we joke that at the company, uh, everybody has two titles. Uh, you are either... Uh, your customer success and something else, right? Um, so at the end of the day, you know, putting customers first, doing an amazing effort at providing our customers with everything they need to be successful is number one priority for us. And whether that requires us for, for us to build the right features or help them onboard their company or help them find partners that they need to extend their use case, this is something that, you know, we are very, very focused as a, as a company. 
transitioning these four cultural aspects of what we are has been universal across the board, right? Um, so at the end of the day, yes, every market might have, you know, different talent pool and different people, but at the end of the day, the way we work is this, and these are the things that, uh, you know, we, we stand for. So let's talk uh, a bit about your customers. You, you mentioned you spent over $10,000 in gift cards at the beginning to get to know potential customers. And, and that's the definition of doing something that doesn't scale. Uh, I love it. But obviously, it has evolved today. Um, distribution, B2B distribution, is going to be key to get your product in front of uh, potential customers. Uh, maybe tell us about some of your distributional ta- distribution tactics that have worked to scale the company. Last year at that time, we were 100% inbound driven business. Um, our revenue in September was 81% driven by outbound. Um, and the reason for that is because at the end of the day, what we are doing is something that the market category is still forming and growing. And people are just discovering that instead of, you know, buying an expense management tool and, you know, uh, data extraction tool and accounts payable solution and getting a cards from a bank or some fintech, you can actually put all of these things together in one place, which is key because the finance team is at the end of the day, not a technical team that is forced to go and stitch together three, four solutions. And their complexity, if you, if, if, if the company is present in six, seven markets, uh, these tools and these vendors are just multiplying and the complexity is really, really hard. And for, for you as a finance team to stay on top of the control and the real-time information and really to put together these policies and enforce them across the board is really hard. So what happens at the end of the day is you go back to being on the defense as a finance team and you just say you don't spend anything through cards, everything goes through an approval and you really institute this kind of a very heavy toll of admin work across the organization, across the board of people building expense reports, managing approving expense reports, people requesting money, people spending their personal money, waiting for the finance team to reimburse them. And this is really completely changing, you know, the landscape. Um, so I think uh, at the end of the day, it is quite important for for you to be focused on, on one clear path of how you want to get this to market. Um, and for us, we re- really realized that at the end of the day, this kind of a change on the market cannot just happen with inbound where people have heard about the market category. And this is where outbound has been a great tool for us, where we are able to, uh, you know, close customers coming from, you know, the logistics sector, from transportation, from, you know, uh, you know, agriculture and so on, where at the end of the day, these are not the customers that are going to go and they're not the kind of the first early adopters. They're kind of the early majority. So this really shows that the market category is now across the chasm and it's moving into where the big market is coming. Um, and, and that's why outbound has been a great tactic for us because at the end of the day, we are working in a, in a market that is massive and still highly uneducated about opportunities that are coming together. People cannot believe in a lot of countries that you know, their banking portal can turn into a full-fledged, so to say, ERP function where you can actually control and, and put together rules and policies on who can use your card, when, why, 
uh, how and so on. So all of these rules, all of the you know workflows you need for who approves and makes payments uh, through for suppliers and how you manage the suppliers, how you manage subscriptions, how you manage cost centers, and all of the reporting uh, can be actually in real time, uh, can be automated. Uh, you don't have to go and do data extraction. You know, Payhawk does data extraction in 62 country uh, languages. Sorry, so we can really automate a lot of the admin work that you know finance teams and, and accountants and and managers, middle managers uh, have been doing right now. And so that's why that was a big shift with it. Uh, and the more we reach out to the market, the more we explain what we do, you know, the more results we get. How, how do you think about the speed of shipping new products? Because I imagine your customers are asking for for new tools, new products all the time. But how do you balance it against you know, the speed that you can actually do this in a in a competent way? Yeah, I mean, we do have uh, a pretty unique way of working internally. Uh, we, are, we are the company that's shipping a lot more than all of our competitors at the same time. We are the first company that we shipped credit cards in the U.S. coming from Europe. Uh, we've just shipped, uh, you know, credit cards in the U.K. as well. We have debit cards uh, in uh, all across Europe. We support you know, bank payments, uh, you know, in SEPA, faster payments, you know, BCRA, um, now we are adding ACH in the US. And on top of that, we have native integration, you know, to companies like, you know, Oracle NetSuite, uh, you know, Microsoft Dynamics and, and others. And we have pretty advanced workflows and permissions and, you know, automation tools. And the reason why we are able to do so is, first of all, we had a extremely efficient engineering team. Uh, when we closed our series B round, we had just an engineering team of 11 people. And that's coming back to, to the beginning of the conversation, who we are and what we strive to achieve. The second thing is we have a pretty unique operating model internally of how we do things. First of all, we operate as a company on the SaaS cadence, something that was introduced by David Sachs in Yammer, where you have... You split the company operations in two phases where you have the sales and the finance team working in one cadence, which is the quarterly. And then you have the product and the marketing team being shifted uh, so that they actually are lagging the quarter with, let's say, not lagging, but actually ahead of the quarter with, uh, with the month. So their season ends up at the last month of the financial quarter so that you can actually accelerate the quarter with new tools and new features. And this way we have more management time planning the sales and the finance functions and then more time planning the product and marketing. The second thing we do, which is pretty unique within the within the engineering function, is we operate in uh, two modes, which are called future and current. So future is part of our teams operate on the future roadmap so they operate on a three-month season. Uh, you know, these are engineers that we just, uh, you know, they focus on a big feature. Nobody disturbs them with everything. They're like, hey, this is the big feature. This is what you need to do. Don't worry about all the noise. And then current is a set of robots and engineers that work on the immediate priorities, the firefighting, you know, the they work on a Kanban board where there is a work in progress. They're exposed to the second-level support for the, uh, support team, uh, you know, they're keeping the system alive, they're firefighting and, and having all the noise. So once the, you know, the teams that are in the future go and ship something, they switch roles and they become the current, right? Because usually when you ship something new, 
most of the, let's say, support feedback issues might be with these new features. So they, they have to get and support their staff. And these people that were in the noise and the firefighting into the mess, now they moved away on a more quiet time and they have time to go and build other quality features. And by prioritizing how much focus and priorities you put on future versus current, you can actually dictate you know, the amount of work you put into the future. And sometimes we say, now we would like to catch up on key features. We put very heavy stress on the future. We have less you know, investment into the current just to keep the system alive. Then sometimes we see that we would like to really make, um, you know, a lot more robustness into the system, you know, ensure that we are able to get the, you know, feature requests and the small improvements from customers, ship them much faster Then we switch gears and we prioritize the current. So being able to do these trade-offs and, uh, you know, this is a simple explanation. There is a lot more behind the scenes and a lot more strategy and, and processes, uh, but, you know, having the company operate in a, what we call Payhawk OS, is our operating system that includes the SaaS cadence, you know, the seasonalities. We have, you know, when we plan OKRs, when we plan initiatives, how the leadership team works, when we do onboard board meetings, when we do salary compensations and employee satisfactions. All of that is outlined in what we call Payhawk OS. And every employee that joins the company reads through that and understands how we work, right? And then as a leadership team and management team, we have these handles where we can actually, you know, change the priorities, change the strategy, change the, the roadmaps and, the, uh, you know, the, the drive the metrics in the right direction based on what needs to happen at the, any given time. I think this is fascinating, especially for a lot of early stage entrepreneurs who listen to the show, as I was mentioning offline. Um, on that note, any, any mistakes... That, that, that you can share that you've made uh, throughout your, your Payhawk uh, journey, um, you know, and any, some of your, your biggest challenges along the way? I think um, one of the biggest mistakes that we have made in the company were in places where we didn't listen enough to the customer. We had many opportunities where the customers were telling what's important and we were, you know, understanding that feedback, but then we were trying to do too many things at the same time. And as we mature as a scale up, now the, the voice of the customer is a lot more clear and we are a lot more focused on just execution and drive. We have set on the strategy right now. It's about focus and operational excellence. So these are some, some of the, the big switch we had to do. Um, we had too many priorities, too many things we wanted to do at the same time. And when you're trying too many things to do at the same time, that's not going to be the great outcome. And now we are trying to be a lot more step-by-step um, that at the end of the day, we have been able to achieve a lot of things, but I think that could have been a, a bigger toll on the team, uh, a lot more pressure, a lot more stress on the team. And uh, uh, that, that would have been easier. Uh, on the team if we have been a little bit more uh, structured at the beginning. I'd say that's one. Second thing is, um, you know, not letting people go immediately when you see things don't work. Sometimes, you know, you know, and there is something that I learned through, through the hard time uh, is that and this is very close to selling. So I do a lot of selling. So in selling, there is a saying that, You know, the moment you, you think about reducing the canvas size of the, of the sales is the moment you should start doing it right now. 
um, because if you wait, then it's going to be too late in about 30 minutes from now. And the same thing is with, with, with uh, you know, letting go of people. Unfortunately, the moment you start thinking about that somebody needs to be let go is the moment you should do it. And unfortunately, this is, you know, the worst part of the job. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we try to give and support everybody in the business. Uh, for me, as a, as a leader, when we let go of somebody, that's also part of my mistake, right? I could have prevented that. I could have done other things to, to, to really not to get to that stage. Um, but in cases where things haven't worked out, maybe doing that faster and sooner would have been better for the business. Um, and uh, it is really hard to find the right balance. But at the end of the day, that is, I think that is the, the most important thing for, for a person on, on, on top of a scale-up company. Uh, I, I think about, you know, for myself as a leader, you know, the limit to myself of, you know, a lot of people ask, okay, the company is growing. It's a unicorn now. We grew from 70 employees to 310 employees. Uh, we're in seven countries. You know, what's the limit for, for a CEO? And I spent maybe 70 times of 70% of my time recruiting and leading wow. people and building the organization. Um, and to me, the limit is going to be at the point of time where I'm not able to attract much smarter people to me that are going to be more, a lot uh, that are going to be super motivated and excited about the business we are building. Right. I think that's going to be kind of the limit for myself and, and getting to this realization takes time. And that was through a lot of the mistakes that we made, especially with, you know, you know, I think the biggest mistakes you can make, and I, I want to double that is really, you know, hiring the wrong person you can really break down a department and organization if you are not careful there. So from anything that we can, you know, from all the mistakes we do on a daily basis, unfortunately the hardest would be those with, with people. And you need to be really absolutely sure on the people you're bringing on board and making sure that they're setting them for success, doing everything possible as a leader to ensure that they have the right resources, the right contexts, uh, you know, the right instruments to be successful. Um, and setting people for success is, is quite important. Otherwise, you can go and get, uh, you know, a world-class leader at something, and if you put him in the wrong context and the wrong environment, and you set the wrong expectations, there is so much people can deliver. That's why you've said that you like to overspend on talent and people, right? How, how do you know you're actually overspending? We ask them how much they pay. <laughs> Easy. And also, we do have a lot of, you know, you know, one of the good things today on the VC world, which was, wasn't available 10, 15 years ago when we were scaling with Teleric, is that you now have a lot more benchmarks on where actual salaries are. And we always try to match where people are versus the market. And then we try to see whether we can actually meet, meet their expectation or exceed them, their expectations. Uh, and we do try to do our best uh, at trying to exceed the expectations of people. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, with, with uh, th that at the end of the day adds a lot of pressure for delivery. And we just need to execute. We are doing everything possible on our end, you know, to have strong pay. And now we have to just deliver, right? No, you know, that's investing, you know, getting people to, to be vested into the business, to have a, uh, not to think about, you know, 
other challenges outside of work uh, is is something that you can achieve with with the proper salary levels and the right incentives into the business. But then it's all about execution. And uh, unfortunately, the opportunity we cost we have as a business at, at uh, such a massive market is 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 quite big. And uh, at the end of the day, being at ninety percent. Uh, is not always enough. And uh, unfortunately, that's true for everybody in the organization. And we try to keep ourselves to the highest standards internally, in terms of especially operational excellence and talent acquisition. So, Christo, before we go, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, you know, who are your, your heroes or sort of like some of the people that inspire you um, to to go out and, and, you know, kill it every day and, and maybe who have been some of the most uh, helpful people in, in your journey? Yeah, I think definitely the, you know, the founders of Teleric, uh, what these guys have achieved was, you know, something, you know, absolutely amazing because they achieved it in, in years where, you know, the VC environment was very different. You know, they fundraised with Summit Partners in 2008 and, you know, nobody knew what a VC is in Bulgaria until, I would say, 2015. Um, so they were able to really be a, a lot of hair of their time. And, you know, they operate in an environment where right now you have like Bessemer Venture Partners Index, a Cloud Index and Benchmarks. And you can go and check KPIs and you can benchmark where you are for everything. And they, you know, 15 years ago, that information wasn't there, right? Uh, you didn't have mentors, you didn't have partners, and they these guys really managed to maneuver very hard environment and get the company to an amazing outcome. Um, and uh, I think these are some of the people that, you know, they became angels. Most of the people that I have been very impressed in our journey, I have tried to attract as angels. So uh, these are some of the people that we, we continue to work. Uh, also as VCs, there were some VCs that... Um, I was very fascinated to meet and learn. And at the end of the day, this is a people business. You know, money is one side, but at the end of the day, you are building a team. And your board is a team as well. And you want to make sure that this is our, a group of people that are fully vested about your business and and you, you are building a healthy environment there. And a lot of the people that are on the board are some, some of the people that have been really inspiring us and pushing us to, to think beyond our wildest dreams. And I think that is what, and who you need to be next to you. And I, I mean, I think the answer is much simpler. Usually the heroes for me are people that are around me uh, and including my wife, looking at our two kids um, and uh, everybody on the board, everybody that's on the leadership team. These are the people we try to, to associate with. And at the end of the day, yes, we all like the inspiring stories of, you know, Steve Jobs and so on. But, you know, unless you are into the details you know, and, and, and you understand the dynamics internally, judging a book by the cover is not always great, right? So, you know, I try to, to keep more real and just look around the people around us and surround myself with as many of those people as possible. Fascinating stuff. Well, Christo, thank you for stopping by. Truly inspiring conversation coming out of Bulgaria. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, mostly I would say LinkedIn. Um, I'm spending most of my time on LinkedIn and uh, I'm trying to read all of my conversations and invitations. Uh, 
so that's the best best place to best place to find me. All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Miguel. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Heristo, CEO of Payhawk. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It truly helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Bye.